Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Well, George, we are back, and uh, timing is everything. It's it is. It is, Dan. hear a lot. And one of the things we've been talking about in this podcast is the uh, difficulty we have seeing the time horizon accurately, and especially the further out you go, the harder it is to really predict when something's going to happen. When it comes to something like investing, knowing when is very, very critical. So we'll go ahead and uh, in this episode, talk about the brain and timing, and then how that applies in our daily lives. Um, a good thing to think about is we are in a sense, built for a 24-hour clock. That's why we, we always think about structuring our day and scheduling our, our day with loading up important tasks early. Um, we have a, clearly a, a circadian rhythm where we, we just aren't going to be as, as alert. Um, so that's kind of our, as big a time window as we have. Is sort of we, we're on a 24-hour clock. And of course, if you're sleep-deprived, you uh, your performance degrades very rapidly. Uh, you also have shorter time spans that have to do with mostly our survival needs. So we, our interest will, will wax and wane uh, very acutely. And all of these uh, elements of timing add up to um, all the challenges we have whenever we project much further out in time. Yes, it's, it, this becomes very problematic in investing simply because being early is the same thing as just being wrong in a lot of cases. You can overcome some of those issues by having an idea that's maybe it has some catalyst that's on the horizon uh, or there is uh, something you see that will come to fruition, but it's otherwise robust. You know, you're, for instance, if you're buying a company, you're going long, you would want to own that company even if this circumstance didn't exist. Uh, but then when the circumstance arises, you can take advantage of it. So let me talk a little about what we tend to do uh, in terms of our brain. So one of the uh, starting points here is we've all heard of adrenaline or epinephrine, and that, that's going to come about with an acute stress response. So you get a burst of adrenaline to basically get you out of danger. It operates really fast, and it's impossible to ignore, right? We're just compelled to follow that. Um, but that's a very uh, short-lived response. We don't stay in that sort of stress state with pumped full of adrenaline very long. And we can't do anything terribly useful there because it's just rallying all of our resources to get out of uh, harm's way really fast. There's another chemical called norepinephrine or noradrenaline, which exists within the brain. Uh, the, different, the primary difference is noradrenaline will not elevate your heart rate, whereas adrenaline does. And what noradrenaline does is wax and wane with our interests. So there's an area called the locus ceruleus or blue nucleus, which is actually part of the brainstem. And what the brainstem does is have a widespread influence throughout the cortex. And so the locus ceruleus is in a nice position to, to basically uh, activate uh, large areas of the brain. And so that's what happens a lot with our incentives. So when we are seeking a reward 
or uh, avoiding danger. That's it's not the stress variety like your life's uh, under threat, uh, but rather uh, we want to get something done quickly. What seems to happen is some of the areas that are involved in predicting rewards will activate that locus ceruleus, sending the norepinephrine response through the body. Now, when uh, we've, we've talked about the styles of thinking before, that you have kind of this instinct, intuition, and reason, particularly toggling between your uh, intuition and your reason, Daniel Kahneman calls this a system one for intuition and system two for uh, deliberative reasoning. And uh, what, what's going on there is uh, there's an old study where Kahneman was actually involved with this work. You would get a pupillary dilation when you moved into a deliberative sort of system two, slower, more careful mode of thinking. Classically, you use that system to overcome your biases, your intuitive and instinctual level biases. It's, in a sense, an override system, and that's linked back to the locus ceruleus. That, that's where norepinephrine increase will actually dilate our pupils in a very brief way. So there's a, a kind of a cool little biological marker for moving into that more deliberative state. And that allows us the chance to uh, analyze things a little more carefully. Uh, that doesn't last long. They call it a phasic response. We get the norepinephrine burst, we do a little bit of mental work, and then that's gonna gradually um, you know, decrease. Uh, at that point, we move into more what's called the the tonic mode for norepinephrine, which uh, you know locus, locus ceruleus is still active, but now it's searching for other opportunities. So you get a sense of the time scale of the brain. If it's immediate danger, adrenaline, heart rate increase, we get out of the way, extremely stressful. Um, if it's just interesting, it's norepinephrine, little pupil increase uh, for dilation, moves us into a focused, deliberative state, and then that goes away and we start to kind of explore again. And so that's really our, our sort of natural timescale for the brain is getting interested in these moment-by-moment uh, -moment events and uh, norepinephrine will decrease dramatically even at the tonic level when we uh, get fatigued and eventually at, during the, the sleep cycle, it's, that activity is very low. So let's frame that uh, process with a couple of examples. One example that comes to mind, and we've talked about it before, uh, and actually there was some resolution to it uh, this weekend, uh, was the uh, Equifax data breach that uh, occurred. And there was this basically a, a major news story that Equifax had released, I think it was uh, like 100 million uh, users' data, their social security numbers, their credit histories, things of that. It had been, they'd been breached by a hacking attempt. Very dramatic, very fear-inducing response. It right. was, and uh, I think we've mentioned before that the culmination of that was Chuck Schumer coming out on uh, the Senate floor and saying that this data breach was uh, a uh, incident of corporate malfeasance that hadn't been seen since Enron, right? Very dire. Yeah. Very dire. The stock dropped from, I'd say, uh, $135 or so uh, down into the 90s. Uh, basically because of this fear 
uh, that you know you had a lot of media coverage. This was on the front in the front lines of what everybody uh, was looking at, uh, and you know we, we you can think of the brain function there. Uh, that fight or flight response that uh, was likely being initially triggered and then followed. You can imagine Schumer's adrenaline pumping as he makes this <laughs> yeah. dire announcement, and uh, yeah, that 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 will drive a a very transient, rapid price change. And and then later, perhaps moving to that more deliberative analysis, where people were focused on all of the different factors. Uh, that were surrounding the data breach and what it may mean, but ultimately it lost people's attention. You know, we see this in politics as well, like how long something lasts within a news cycle. Even if we focus on these things in a deliberative fashion, if it's not persistent, if there's not, you know, continuing development around this particular issue, it fades. And this provides us with really interesting opportunities in the financial markets really compelling opportunities to take advantage of the drift that occurs in our attention. I think that's right. And, and for news, um, we seem to have a short attention span, but if you think about our, our brain being oriented toward our survival, it's, it's really about getting enough food and staying out of danger. And so we do have this short-lived quality to our thinking. Um, and that's the challenge with your sort of mental structure of, of how you see the world is to be able to anticipate how others are going to react and uh, also be aware that your own attention will migrate uh, maybe quicker than it ought to, uh, to do a rational analysis, uh, but that's just built into the circuitry. So to tie up that Equifax example, uh, the resolution that we saw uh, that came out on Friday is basically that they're going to have to they have a settlement. I think it was somewhere uh, in the $700 billion range or 700, excuse me, $700 million range for them to be able to clean up the data breach issue. When we looked at it in our shop, we estimated that kind of the high end would be about a billion dollars, which represented an 8% or an $8 drop in the stock price from its peak at 130 and change. Uh, and so really it had been a big overshoot. Today, Equifax, I think, is at all all-time highs. It's back in the kind of mid-130s, somewhere in that neighborhood. So it's fully recovered everything from the data breach. And we now know that the actual number was l much less drastic than people had originally feared. There are probably a lot of examples like that. You know, in in the moment, it looks a certain way, and then over time, um, things just recover and stabilize, and everyone's norepinephrine system has essentially returned to a tonic mode, and we're we're off that subject and on to other things. And it, and it's interesting. It can also lead to an understatement of the issue. Um, a good example that I can think of, and we've, we may have touched on this in some of the podcasts in the past, is the housing, right? So in the, in the big short, uh, when a number of different investors had identified issues associated with subprime, which by the way, had been on people's radars for some time, uh, Mark Faber had mentioned the issues associated with subprime and the housing market in the 2006 
episode of Barron's. He was clearly early. But those issues were there. The pricing for subprime uh, swaps remained uh, pretty consistent prior to the financial crisis. You didn't see uh, a big, big increase in the value of those swaps until you just reached a critical stage where it didn't hold together. Uh, so largely, we can have some event that occurred. If it's historically anomalous, we may return to that state. You know, We deliberate it. We get excited about the issue in the short term. Uh, but there's not widespread market acceptance until it becomes acute. And this is uh, a phenomenon called habituation, which is uh, a very clear characteristic of the nervous system. The brain expects a resolution when we get amped up over something. And if if it doesn't resolve, like, you know, it's not as if the warning signs weren't there with the housing market. However, they just weren't resolving. And so the danger there is if you've noticed it, nothing really changes. You've noticed it again, nothing really changes. It, it can start to, we habituate to that idea, like, well, maybe it isn't going to crash, you know, just because it, it's never reaching that resolution. And so then it becomes, uh, that's where people start to get really sort of delusional about things as they begin to think the economy could expand forever, right? Just because it hasn't crashed when you thought it might, and that, that again, was sort of a victim of this mistiming it and then some sense distorting the likelihood because it didn't resolve when we thought it should. And we see something similar right now in, uh, that's real time uh, that's occurring with animal protein. So in China, you've had this breakout of the African swine fever and uh, China produces and consumes half of the world's pork, which is roughly 40% of all the protein that's consumed in the world is pork. So uh, there, this disease, uh, according to official reports, has killed 20% of the hog population in China. There are unofficial reports from folks like Rabobank that it's actually 40% and this disease is continuing. This is a dramatic amount of uh, protein that is coming off the market. It represents somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% of all of the world's protein that is going to just be gone. And initially, when the news reports associated with the African swine fever broke back in March, we saw about a 35% increase in the price of hogs live hogs and the CME futures, uh, but that faded from uh, back in June as uh, basically the dynamics within the United States suggested that there might be some pressure on hog prices, things like uh, a milder 4th of July, and there tends to be a lot of consumption of, of meat, pork, during 4th of July. Issues associated with uh, possible continuing trade conflicts with Mexico. There was the talk uh, that uh, Trump said he was going to start putting on a 5% tariff on everything uh, coming from Mexico, and then it would increase each month until they resolved their issues along the border. 
and some fear that that would then result in retaliatory tariffs with our largest trading partner on pork, which is Mexico. So pork prices came under pressure yet again uh, and gave up about half of the move that they made to the upside when the ASF issue was originally announced. So what's happening? Well, we've seen increased uh, purchases of pork from China. And just to kind of create a picture as to how big this issue is, China produces about 5 million hogs or 500 million hogs. That's their population. The United States has about 75 million hogs. The total seaborne trade for pork is 65 million hogs. They have lost 100 to 200 million hogs. So it is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150% to 300% of the population of hogs in the United States that are gone. It is a massive, massive amount. But what happens is those hogs get slaughtered. They're still fine for human consumption. They end up in cold storage, right? They end up going into the freezer. And you have to feed through that capacity so you don't see a huge spike initially. So what we think is going to happen is when you get towards the end of the year and the beginning of next year, that protein prices across the board, because they won't be able to replace all of that pork. They'll have to eat chicken. They'll have to eat fish. They'll have to eat eggs, beef. There'll have to be other substitutes to make up for it. And just general protein consumption will have to come down. You'll see these massive spikes in protein prices that are unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this in the history of uh, the protein markets. Uh, so again, kind of like the subprime housing market, you know, I think that it's unprecedented. Now, the other possibility is that I'm wrong for some reason, that I'm missing something, which you know, I've created this narrative and I'm probably suffering from confirmation bias where I'm looking for evidence that's supported. And it'll it. take months for the narrative to play out. Yeah, that's so right. You're in the challenging spot of predicting the timing of all this and not having events intervene that could always uh, somehow change things. So this will be a fun one for us to go back to uh, as we see these developments actually occur. And then we can kind of dissect uh, my psychology if I'm wrong uh, or uh, the psychology of the market as this has played out. I suspect this is very, very similar to what happened with Equifax, very similar to what happened with the subprime market, uh, where uh, the ability for it to capture the attention of market analysts, because if you actually talk to people that are in the industry, they're like, this is a historical anomaly that we've never seen before. It is something, it is a stream that has you know, never been crossed. And uh, so it's really difficult for people to evaluate market impact in circumstances like that. We're just not wired that way. I'm reminded also of the, maybe because of the topic, the swine flu from about, uh, I don't know, 2011 or thereabouts, where it was, the threat was that humans would get the flu. And this is really what sends people into hysteria, right? Yes. It was just everywhere in the news, far more than the uh, pork situation now. And it ultimately turned out to be, it was hard to even notice the impact. And, and right away, I mean, the, the news cycle lasted very short on that. And then of the avian flu kind of replaced the swine flu. And, you know, that was similar. Right? And, it, and once again, though, it's this sort of threatening, very short-lived 
uh, hysteria, it's the adrenaline or, or norepinephrine response um, to the immediacy of the problem. And then if the problem doesn't manifest itself with dire consequences right away, we have this odd comfort level that uh, will exist. And it's like the down the road, we'll worry about that when we get to it. That's often the default for people. And it's it's probably not a it's probably not a bad mechanism because you know you you think about those instances in the past they didn't really come to fruition and lead to you know great disaster or whatever uh, now they could have I mean th the bubonic plague killed a third of Europe uh, and you know nobody ever talks about it that would do to financial markets and I I think the problem would obviously be something that's bigger than uh, than what happens to somebody's money when you're talking about like massive uh, infections and diseases that could spread. Uh, but right. uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know there are a lot of these things that are out there that that kind of what makes makes the the game of investing so dynamic and difficult, uh, where something can arise that you totally don't expect uh, and really change the landscape. And that goes to a sort of best practice is often to play the long game and try to, you know, really place your investments with a longer time horizon in mind, just because you can then deal in these more structural factors that don't have as much emotional volatility because uh, we, the more emotional or threatening the situation is, the more irrational people will become. And uh, we're just wired this way to to think in the very short term under those kind of circumstances. So extremely hard to predict and uh, very much hard to price into a market because it's not going to react anywhere near the speed of the of our nervous system. I think it's always good to try to have robustness to your ideas. So for instance, when we're talking about things like the African swine fever, uh, we have an investment in a company called Seaboard. Uh, and there, uh, if you look at the historical performance of that company, it's actually outperformed Berkshire Hathaway over the last 20 years by a significant margin. It outperformed the S&P by a significant margin. It's family controlled. Uh, they have more cash on the balance sheet than the actual float of the company. The family controls 80% of the company. Uh, and the management was buying back for the company. Uh, at a price that's about 5% below where it's trading today. So the robustness of the idea is even if we're wrong in the African swine fever, for that particular stock, that'd be something that we'd want to own anyway. So when you're making decisions, trying to capitalize on some catalyst that you see in the future, it's good to make those decisions by investing in something that you would otherwise want to own anyway, because it's desirable on its own merits, as opposed to this catalyst that you foresee. It's great advice. So to wrap up, we've talked all about timing in the brain and the impact of, of fear and danger and adrenaline and norepinephrine, and how these uh, lead us toward a bias in a sense toward a very short time horizon, and how that, that can cause some really irrational, volatile uh, things to happen in markets. And uh, this plays into how difficult it is to actually predict things in the business cycle or in the macro economy, which we've, we've covered in other episodes. 
So we thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in these topics, be sure to visit the show notes at mentalmodelspodcast.com where you can find more links to the basic brain physiology as well as some of the topics we've talked about today, including the pork industry. And we will be very highly interested in revisiting this particular episode in, say, six months' time and see how it's going. Uh, just another reminder, uh, we have a forthcoming book entitled Understanding Behavioral Biases, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, which is all about some of these biases that can undermine your performance and the uh, basis for those within our brains and how it impacts our lives. I think that about wraps it up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.